Well, here we are at the end of this book, and these are the words that Paul left with this church in Corinth. These are the final words, the parting words from the apostle in this letter. These are very important words, and we are going to spend the majority of our time today in just the first couple of verses, verses 13 and 14, where we see five ingredients that the apostle has given for a healthy, strong church. Five important ingredients that every church should embrace, should seek to employ. Five important tasks that are set before us. Let's look in 1 Corinthians 16, starting in verse 13. Paul says, Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Five ingredients for a healthy biblical church. Let's take them one by one. We'll spend the most time on this first imperative. Be on the alert. Be alert, Paul says. Why? Well, you're in a war. You are in a spiritual war. There are bullets flying all around, and so often we are just ignorant of this. We are numb to this. But spiritually speaking, if we could put on special glasses and see what was going on in the world, we are constantly in spiritual warfare. Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus where he's writing this letter. Later on in his ministry, he would write back to the church in that city, and he would tell them to put on the armor of God. Why do you need armor? Because there are flaming darts from the evil one being launched your way, aren't there? You are constantly in spiritual warfare, and so the call is to be alert. Don't sleep, but be alert. And this is a present, active imperative set before us. That means continually, constantly, always be on the alert. And there are four aspects, as I see it in the New Testament, about how we are to be alert. Because you might just read that and think, okay, that sounds good, but I need specifics. Well, Scripture gives us some specifics. Starting in Mark 13, if you want to turn with me back to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, Jesus was clearly concerned that His disciples be alert. Mark 13, starting at verse 33, Jesus said to His disciples to take heed, to keep on the alert. There's our word, Mark 13, 33. Take heed, keep on the alert. For you do not know when the appointed time will come. It is like a man away on a journey who, upon leaving his house and putting his slaves in charge, assigning to each one his task, also commanded the doorkeeper to stay on the alert. There's our word again. Verse 35, Therefore, be on the alert. For you do not know when the master of the house is coming, whether in the evening, at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, in case he should come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, be on the alert. You think Jesus was stressing a point there? Be on the alert. And this has major implications for us regarding the second coming of Christ. We are to be on the alert for when the Master returns. That's what Jesus is speaking of in this illustration. He is coming back. Jesus is coming back, and we are to be aware and alert and watchful in light of that reality. 
Now, you might need more details still because, you know, if you're thick-skulled like me, well, what does that mean? You walk around looking at the sky, waiting for the clouds to be rolled back as a scroll. I'm being watchful. I'm being alert for the second coming. Well, that's not it. It's actually in reference to a lifestyle, a way we are to live in light of the coming Christ. William Barclay, a commentator from old, he said this. I think it just sums it up really well. He gives us the great task of making every day fit for Him to see and being at any moment ready to meet Him face to face. All life becomes a preparation to meet the King. It's a good word, isn't it? All life becomes preparation to meet the King, making every day fit for our coming King. We are to be alert and watching for the coming of Christ. Secondly, we are to be alert in prayer. We are to be alert in prayer. Colossians chapter 4, verse 2 gives us this. In Colossians 4, 2, Paul said, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert. There's our word. Keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. We are to be alert in prayer. It's the activity of a Christian watching for the coming Lord. What do alert Christians do? They pray. Prayer is not a mindless activity. Prayer is an alert activity. I know that there are some of you that go to sleep by praying, (laughs) and I'm not saying that's bad at all. Uh, There's a man that I know who says that's just one of the sweetest things. It's like a child falling asleep in his father's arms when you go to sleep praying. And that's all fine and well, but it is an activity of alertness, (laughs) though you may fall asleep sometimes. (laughs) It is an activity of alertness. We are to be conscious of what's going on in the world around us and take those observations, to take those realities, those difficulties, those struggles to the Lord in prayer, to be alert in prayer with thanksgiving. Thirdly, we see in the New Testament we are to be alert of sin in the church and sin even in our own hearts. Turn with me, if you can, to Revelation, Revelation chapter 3, where Jesus again is speaking, and He's delivering a message here to the church in Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, the first three verses, Jesus calls them to be aware of their own complacency. The church is to be alert for herself. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 1, it says, to the angel or to the messenger of the church in Sardis, write, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive but you are dead. Wake up, be alert, he says, and strengthen the things that remain which were about to die. For I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, if you do not become alert, Jesus says, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. So Jesus here is letting them know that He will personally judge this church if they do not wake up, if they do not become alert. These commands that God has given the church to be watchful in prayer, to live for Him, to honor Him, to serve Him. A church can become complacent in these things. A church can get to the point where they're alive But actually, they're dead, Jesus says. And so the church is to be alert for herself. Every local church 
is to recognize that temptation, apathy, always knocking at the door, getting tired in this Christian race, stumbling, falling, disqualifying yourself, always a possibility. And we are to be alert for such sin in the church and even in our own hearts. And the fourth aspect of being alert is for false teaching. We're not only to be alert watching for the coming Christ, being alert in prayer, being alert for the church, but to also look for false teaching that can creep in. In Acts chapter 20, Paul is commissioning the Ephesian elders. He's meeting with them outside of Ephesus, and he's telling them some very important thoughts. In Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which He purchased with His own blood. I know that after my departure, here it is, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. So what are they to do? Men creeping in, teaching perverse things. How are elders of the church to respond? Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. We are to be on the alert for false teaching to watch out for false teaching in the church. And so as Paul writes to this church in Corinth, be on the alert, it really has a lot of implications, doesn't it? There are a lot of implications in the Christian life for the local church. What are we supposed to be watching for? Well, several things. To live life in light of the coming Christ, to be alert in prayer, to be alert watching out for apathy among ourselves, and to watch out for false teaching both for ourselves and for the church, we are to be alert. The second ingredient that Paul gives them in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, not only be on the alert, he says, but stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. This is maintaining a fixed position in your belief. You're immovable in your position. And if I could put this in the culture's terms today, this means be a bigot. To be bigoted about the faith, that's how, of course, we are framed by the culture. But we are to do so in love. Stand firm. Do not budge. You have a confession of Jesus Christ. By God's grace, it has been delivered to you, and you have believed. Do not budge on the faith. When it comes to your confession, be immovable, stand firm, let no other person, let no teaching, let no wind of the culture take you away from this confession. Stand firm in the faith. The Christian church must never entertain the idea that the content of our faith is somehow arbitrary. Perhaps you've heard people talk like that before. Well, at least they believe something, right? Faith is better than no faith. That's not always the case. At least, at least he's going to that church. I mean, at least he's going to a church. It's not the church I would pick, but at least it's a church. Is that really better than no church? Not always. Not always. The content of our faith, the doctrine we say we believe, matters. It absolutely 
matters. In Peter's first epistle, 1 Peter 5.12, he tells his audience to stand firm also, saying, stand firm in God's grace. He says, I've written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. What are they to do with it? Stand firm in it. We take the faith, the content of the gospel, the foundation of Christianity, this is, that has been delivered to us, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, and we stand firm. The grace of God, we stand firm in it. And notice in verse, three, or verse 13, rather, when he says stand firm in the faith, he says the faith. He doesn't say faith. We stand firm in the faith. There is only one faith that Paul has in view here. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to stand firm in the faith. We are to have zeal with knowledge, not to be like some who have zeal that's not in accordance with knowledge. We are to have zeal in accordance with knowledge, gospel knowledge. And we are to embrace and protect the message of Jesus Christ to judge all things by the Word of God that has been given to us, embracing, protecting the truth. Stand firm in the faith. Just like a bride who stands firm, remembering her marriage covenant to her husband when faced with temptation, so each church is to stand firm. The church, the bride of Christ, is to stand firm, remembering the covenant that she's in with the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to stand firm in the faith. Another countercultural type of statement here in verse 13, the third ingredient, act like men. Now, you ladies, you think, okay, what are we doing here? Uh, do I check out at this point or what? Well, what Paul is saying here is to grow up. Paul's saying be mature. He's not saying each one of you act masculine regardless of who you are. He's saying be mature. This is a general call to maturity and bravery for the church. This is a call to the church to be ready for opposition. Are we ready for opposition? Because you know the time to be fortified, the time to be mature and ready to take on what's out there in the world, it's not whenever you get confronted by those things. At that point, it's too late. The church's call is to constantly be maturing in the Word of God and the grace of God, growing in your faith that you may be ready for opposition. If entire churches are made up of immature people, what will the end of those churches be? I think we're seeing that today, aren't we? Over and over again. Some of the, the most recognizable names of churches that have become like the Walmarts and the, and the Amazons of, of churches out there, they're crumbling. When churches are made of immature people, what's the end going to be? Proverbs talks about the end of folly. The end of folly is death. The church is to be mature, to grow up, to act like adults, act like men. And then we get to the fourth ingredient in verse 13, which is actually our first task here that isn't an imperative. Paul says at the end of verse 13, be strong. This is the first ingredient that isn't a command. Now, don't get me wrong, it is a, a, a to-do for the church. This is in front of us as a task for us. But we can't do this. You can't be strong 
and the Greek grammar here reflects this because this is the only verb out of these five that's passive. It could actually more accurately be translated, be strengthened or receive strength. The only way for churches to become strong and even for individual Christians to become strong is to deny yourself and to look to the supply of God, God who supplies the strength. In Ephesians chapter 3, this is an amazing passage, Ephesians 3 starting at verse 14 Paul writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. God grants strength. God is the one who strengthens His church. God is the supply for any time that we might be found with a backbone, for any time that we might be found strong. The credit is the strength of God supplied by Him directly. So the call here, when it says be strong, the call isn't muster your own strength. Dredge up all the strength that you can find in and of yourself. That's not the call here. The call is for the church to prove herself strong through the strength of His might. Again, in Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Not your might, not your brother's might, not your mother's and father's might, not in the pastor's might. Be strong in the strength of God's might. And you might remember earlier in 1 Corinthians, this is one of the more famous verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, Paul says, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. What happens when you start thinking you are your own source of strength? It's like one of those memes. Have you ever seen that meme where it's in a, uh, one of those, uh, what's it called, like extension cord with all the different plugs in it at the end, and it's plugged into itself? That's what you're doing when you're strong in the strength of your own might. It makes no sense. You are not your own source of strength. We have a constant reliance on the Lord for strength. And what a beautiful season that we're in to remember this. As you look outside and you see buds and blooms, isn't it just a wonderful time? Well, where does the tree, where does the flower, where does the bush get its strength? Constantly utterly, totally reliant on the sun and rain. It doesn't provide its own blooms, does it? It's supplied. From without comes our strength. And then finally, in verse 14, let all that you do be done in love. Now we're back to a command. This is back to an imperative. This echoes back, of course, to Earlier in the letter, chapter 13, perhaps the most famous chapter in all of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul's speaking about love in the church, and he says, but now faith, hope, love, abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. What's the greatest thing in the church? What's the greatest ingredient for a healthy church? Love. Let all that you do be done in love. This ingredient empowers the church. This ingredient protects the church. Loving one another is what 
fuels our hope, our faith, our bravery, our strength. As you look back over these other commands, what is alertness? What is standing firm? What is maturity? What is strength without love? Take love away, and what are those things? Just absolutely nothing. Those first four terms, those first four tasks of alertness, standing firm, acting like men, being strong, those are all military terms. Did you notice how kind of strong each one of those is? Military terms. And those of you who have been in the military, I don't suppose you ever heard from a commanding officer, let all that you do be done in love, did you? <laughs> love is really what takes the edge off a lot of these things. Our strength that we have as a church supplied by God, that can be a two-edged sword, can't it? And that first edge is definitely needed. But with that second edge, let's put the, the guard of love over that. Love protects us from cutting where we shouldn't cut, striking where we shouldn't strike. It softens us in a godly way. This is a very big blanket statement, verse 14. Let all that you do be done in love. And it touches every aspect of our lives. Everything that we do. Let all that you do. Everything we do, church, is to be done in love. So to sum it all up, for churches to get healthy, for churches to stay healthy, you have these five ingredients. You think these are worth memorizing, verses 13 and 14? Even just the, the tasks, alertness, standing firm, being mature, being strong, being loving. If we have those five things going on, you think we're going to be okay? Yeah, <laughs> you better believe it. This is God's plan for His church. These are God's ingredients for a healthy church. Now, having committed this faltering church to their task, the apostle has a few final sentiments to convey. You see, we just have verses 15 to 24 left. Should I drag this out? I don't want to end. Well, let's look at verses 15 to 18. His first sentiment is that they acknowledge and submit to their godly examples. Starting at verse 15, Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints, that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have supplied what was lacking on your part. For they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. Acknowledge and submit to godly examples. Well, he mentions Stephanus first, first name found here in verse 15. The household of Stephanus. This is actually the second time that he gets a shout out in this letter. Stephanus is featured both in the last chapter and in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. The first and the last chapters. If you go back to chapter 1, verse 16, we find out that his household is the only one that Paul baptized. Now, I did baptize also in the, the household of Stephanus, Paul said. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized any other. So this man, Stephanus, was probably a dear friend of Paul's. Stephanus probably had a, a sincere longing for Paul as a mentor, as a friend, as a coach, as the one who probably led him to Christ. We see in verse 15 of our chapter today, that 
Stephanus, well, his household, we could say, was the first fruits of Achaia. Achaia, if you remember from last week, is just another name for Greece. As Paul was there in Greece seeking to plant churches, the first one to come to the Lord was Stephanus and his household. Now that's pretty cool, pretty amazing that God plucked this man and his household out of this very pagan area, this very backwards culture, and they were the first fruits. And now he has come to visit Paul in Ephesus. Stephanus has, along with these other two names, if you're looking for baby names, maybe this is a good source for you, Fortunatus and Achaicus. <laughs> what a couple of strange names. Well, they were members of that church in Corinth too, and they found Paul in Ephesus with Stephanus, the three of them together. There are three Corinthian men who likely brought Paul the letter that the Corinthians wrote to Paul with all their questions. Paul's been going through in this letter, answering the Corinthian questions. Well, how did he know what they were wondering? It's likely that these three men, when they came to visit Paul, they brought a letter. They wanted to know about marriage and divorce. They wanted to know about communion. They wanted to know about all sorts of things. And so Paul's been answering their questions one by one. And they supplied what was lacking, it says. Verse uh, 18, 17 rather. They have supplied what was lacking on your part. And we don't have any more detail than that. This could be a, a monetary thing. Perhaps they brought a gift, a financial gift, and they added to it out of their own pockets. We don't know. It could just be that they were there to comfort Paul. And we know that the Corinthian church was slightly lacking in the comfort department, especially as it pertained to the apostle Paul. But I want you to, to take heed of this in verse 18. What was the result of their coming? What was the result of their ministry to Paul? This is amazing. They refreshed Paul's spirit. They refreshed Paul's spirit. Refreshment is the result of loving Christian ministry. When the Lord puts on someone's heart to serve someone else and He enables that person to serve and He works through that service and He touches someone else's spirit, the result is refreshment. What a sweet word. They have refreshed my spirit and he appeals to their experience with these men. He says, they've also refreshed your spirit. This is a good goal for us, isn't it? What do we want the effect of our ministry to be? What do we want the impact that we leave to be? What's our legacy? How about refreshing one another's spirits? To be someone who refreshes another by the Lord's power, by the Lord's gifting speaking the truth in love, being men and women of grace and mercy and kindness. What's the result of that? Always refreshment. I love being around people who just refresh my spirit, and many of them are sitting in this room right now. And he goes from there, well, I should say tied into this whole paragraph, submit to these men, acknowledge these men. You have, back in verse 16, he says, Be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work, everyone who labors. And then the result in verse 18 at the end, Therefore acknowledge such men. These are ways that we should naturally honor God's servants. 
How do we naturally honor one another in the fellowship? How do we, in a Christian sense, bestow honor on a worker, someone who's refreshing? Submit yourselves and acknowledge them. These men sacrificed for the church, Stephanus, Fortunatus, Achaica. They sacrificed for the church in employing the gifts that the Spirit gave them. And you just think about their current circumstances. As Paul writes this letter, they're not in Corinth. Ephesus isn't next door to Corinth. There's a reason Paul had to write a letter and send it away. Did these three men have jobs? Did they have family? Well, of course they did. Certainly they did. And they've made a sacrifice, as apparently they had a habit of doing. And they were there with Paul to refresh Paul's spirit to serve in any way they could. Laborers for the Lord, this teaches us. Laborers for the Lord in Christian service should be respected. There is a proverb about this, Proverbs chapter 12, verse 24. It says, the hand of the diligent will rule. The hand of the diligent will rule. They are worthy of submitting to those who labor in diligence. And then we have in Ephesians 5.21, a great New Testament verse, a great verse for the church. Paul writes, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Each one of us in the fear of Christ is to be subject to one another. As we labor side by side, as we serve one another, be in subjection. Don't fight. And the Corinthians really needed to hear this, didn't they? Stop fighting, stop dividing, but be in subjection. Acknowledging these men, verse 18, that means to recognize them as worthy of following, worthy of imitating. A real unnatural disposition for the church in Corinth. It didn't come naturally to them to submit, to acknowledge other laborers for the Lord. There's a great quote from John MacArthur. He says, Christ's people are not to fight for their own rights, privileges, and respect, but are to seek out and follow those to whom they could submit in Christ. Who can be their teachers? Who can be their examples? True love brings true submission. True submission would, by itself, save countless conflicts, squabbles, and hard and hurt feelings within God's family. It would make His children both happier and more productive in their Father's work. What a sentence. True submission would, by itself, save countless conflict squabbles and hard and hurt feelings within God's family. Isn't that the truth? What a good word. The second sentiment that Paul leaves with them is verses 19 to 22. It's a string of greetings. Start reading with me at verse 19. Paul says, The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And the greeting is in my own hand, Paul. Hmm. Lots of greetings there to think through. This is more than just, I'm letting you know that they say hi. You ever do that with people? Tell so-and-so I say hi. Very few people have ever received a hi through the person who was supposed to give them the hi. <laughs> and the times that it's happened to me, uh, so-and-so says hi. Okay, <laughs> what do I do with that? Uh, go, go tell them I say hi. We'll just keep doing this. I don't know what to do with that. 
Well, it's more than that. It's a greeting. It's a loving affirmation of one another. And his first relay of greeting is from the churches of Asia. You see that in verse 19? Now, let's stretch your memory all the way back to last week. Asia is Turkey. Good. None of you said ham. Good job. Asia is Turkey. That was a bad joke. Uh, Modern-day Turkey, when this includes the churches of Revelation. Earlier, we were reading in Revelation 3, the church of Sardis. It's quite possible that Paul had in mind here the church that was in Sardis, probably newly planted through the ministry of Paul while he was at Ephesus. Those seven churches you read about at the beginning of Revelation, those were all in Asia. Those churches are saying hello in a warm greeting to the church in Corinth. We should take a moment to reflect here, as we did for a long time last week, that this means that the churches knew about each other. They knew about each other. Some church all the way over in the middle of Turkey knew about this church over in Greece, and they cared for them. They prayed for them, I'm sure. They send their warm regards. You also see in verse 19, not just the churches in Asia, but Aquila and Prisca, or Aquila and Priscilla. They greet you heartily, adds that adjective. They greet you heartily in the Lord, along with the church that is in their house. What an amazing couple, Aquila and Prisca. They, if you can remember, all the way back in Acts 18, they were assistants to Paul in his ministry while he was in Corinth. They helped start the church in Corinth. So, as the church received this letter and they see those names, they absolutely know who these people are. They cared about these people. And now, Aquila and Priscilla, they're in Ephesus. They're helping to start the church in Ephesus. And do you know what Aquila and Priscilla did later? They helped start the church in Rome. Corinth, Ephesus, and Rome. That's pretty remarkable. That's pretty amazing. And they weren't just showing up. They weren't people who just attended. They were people who opened their own homes for church meetings. They showed up and said, our house, our house works just fine. You name the time and place. Our house. We'll take care of the place. Just tell us what time. He then says, greet one another. Greet one another. Promote unity with each other. Don't avoid greeting one another. I can just imagine this crazy church in Corinth. When they all got together, there were perhaps people who purposefully avoided other people. And this still happens, doesn't it? Sadly, it happens in churches today. You avoid one another. That's not the way it's to be in church. Paul says, greet one another. You are in God's family. You are the temple of God. You are members of the body of Christ. Using all of these illustrations, Paul has issued them throughout this letter. When you come together, greet one another with a holy kiss. The standard warm embrace for the Corinthians. Greet one another. And then verse 21, Paul gives his own greeting. And he says that this is in his own hand. He's writing this down, his own greeting. This is something Paul communicated in several of his letters toward the end. He would say, this is my own greeting. I think the most interesting one is in 2 Thessalonians 3. In 2 Thessalonians 3.17, Paul finishes that letter by saying, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand, and this is a distinguishing mark I make in every letter. This is the way I write. Must have been cursive or something. I don't know. But he had a distinguishing mark. This is the way that he writes. Isn't that 
touching, a personal signature from the apostle, the inspired apostle. And now, with just three verses left, we see the most important thoughts that Paul had, both about believers and non-believers, that he's finishing the letter with. He says, starting in verse 22, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. Well, he's speaking first to non-believers here in verse 22. Those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who have not been united to Christ by faith. Those who do not have a saving relationship with their Creator. And he says of them that they are, an ana- they are anathema. Accursed, yours says. The, the word is anathema in the Greek. To be cursed of God. To be cut off of all blessings from God. It's the most horrifying state that you could ever imagine being in. To be totally cut off from your Maker, from God Himself. And look how he describes them. He doesn't use the term non-believers. He says, those who do not love the Lord, those who are without affection for the Lord Jesus Christ. The word for love here is the word phileo. It's that brotherly love, that tender brotherly affection. Those who do not have that affection for Jesus Christ, they're apathetic toward Him. They reject Him. They are to be accursed, cut off from God. In a sense, you can imagine Paul saying, look, people can reject me. They can't reject the Lord Jesus. They can't reject the Lord's commands either. Earlier in the letter, Paul wrote back in chapter 7, what I write to you is the Lord's command. Take the command. If you want to curse me, you can. But do not curse the Lord Jesus Christ or His command. It's a great question to ask of people too. Do you love the Lord? It's a question that I ask sometimes when I'm trying to figure out if someone's a believer or not. Someone will talk about his or her children or someone's spouse or maybe someone's looking at marrying somebody. Does he love the Lord? That means something, doesn't it? When you say, is he a Christian? That can mean a lot of different things. In fact, you could say that bar in our culture today is quite low. Does he love the Lord? Does he care for the Lord Jesus Christ as his ultimate priority? Is he full of faith and love for Christ? This is the Christian disposition we are to have, love for the Lord Jesus. You could say, in the same breath as you say, we believe, we love the Lord. That's who we are, lovers of the Lord. And he does speak to believers next. You see that word that finishes out verse 22, Maranatha, you could say, well, that either pertains to the previous sentence or to the sentences that follow. Maranatha means, come Lord Jesus, or just come Lord. Well, is he speaking to the non-believers, come Lord in judgment against those who don't love you? Or is he saying, in light of our faith and love toward God, please come? It's hard to say. I tend to think he's speaking from the position of a group of believers calling out together, Come, Lord Jesus. O Lord, come. 
This is our great desire. It should be our great desire as Christians that Jesus would return. And when He returns, He's going to judge both the living and the dead. When He returns, His reward will be with Him, we read in Scripture. And we should long for that day. Paul says in verse 23, May His grace be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. Our great need This is our great plea, both for ourselves and for one another. This is what we rely on, is the grace of the Lord Jesus. And we are in light of all of this to have love. Even the love that has been passed down to us from the Apostle himself. As he talks about the need for grace in verse 23, in verse 24 he speaks of this mysterious transmission of love My love, verse 24, my love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Despite all else and all the fleshly reasons Paul had to reject these people, he gives them love. My love be with you little rascals, is what he's saying. Paul had a love for them, and that's fuel for us. That should be fuel for us. What empowers and protects us as a church? It's that ingredient of love. Let all that you do be done in love. We've had love passed on to us, haven't we? Christian love, sacrificial service, brotherly affection. It's been passed on to us, and we are to pass it on to others, especially the next generation. This is God's love. It's God's love and the truth that's been granted to us that we might pass it on to others. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus, Paul says. And he concludes with amen. And just like that, we're done (laughs) with 1 Corinthians. (laughs) Next week, we gather to focus especially on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we'll enter into a couple of topical series just To make you aware, we'll do a three-part series on the Bible, why we are a Bible church, why we can rely on the Bible, why we can be confident in the Bible. We'll do a five-week series after that on the topic of pride. All all of you know now to prepare your hearts for that, none more than me. And uh, then after that, we'll start at another book of the Bible, okay? Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your loving kindness, your grace that leads us home, the righteousness that you've imputed to us through your Son, Jesus Christ. Not a righteousness that we have somehow earned, but a righteousness that is utterly yours that you have chosen to share with us on the basis of what Christ has done. Thank you. Thank you for this letter that we just spent so many months studying all the amazing truths that you had for us in there, as well as all of the pertinent principles and applications for us today. God, we thank you that your word is living and active. Your word is sharper than any sword, and your word really gets to the heart of every matter. Lord, thank you for your care for us and for this truth you've chosen to share that we may be more like Jesus. And we ask that you would do this through us by the strength that you supply 
in your Spirit's power. Help us to serve you well. In Jesus' name, amen.